We ask you, Heavenly Father, indeed, as we've been singing, to speak to us, uh, to teach us, to renew our minds. And we pray that uh, by your grace, you would fashion and shape us in the likeness of your Son, that your grace would now teach us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please do sit down. Now, let me encourage you, uh, if you will, to turn uh, back in your Bibles to the reading that Ricky uh, read for us earlier, page 1198. Titus is the book, and we've been looking at this over the last couple of weeks, and we'll continue in the next few weeks. You might also find it useful to dig out um, this um, handout, uh, this uh, sermon outline, so that you know where I'm going in the next few moments as well. Well, as Ben mentioned, we are on the verge of our one big question week of talks. I'm uh, very excited about all that might come out of this uh, week. But one question that will not feature next week is this. Uh, And it's a question that uh, I've heard, um, uh, I've been asked actually many times. If I can be forgiven anything, does that mean I can live how I like? It's a question I'm often asked when I lead the Christianity Explored courses. As people begin to understand the grace of God, they begin to say, if I can be forgiven absolutely anything, that just gives me the ability to live however I like, doesn't it? And it's not unusual that when that question is asked, it comes with some anger or frustration or both. Anger, outrage comes from the idea that someone like Stalin or or Hitler or Pol Pot or Idi Amin or, or Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi or Mugabe could be forgiven for their terrible deeds in this world. Frustration, because God's amazing grace seems to encourage irresponsible living I may have told you this before a friend of mine was trying to persuade his dad to think about the gospel of Jesus Christ but his dad wasn't interested because of the hypocrisy he'd seen in Christians and he said something like this when I worked abroad some of my colleagues would go to mass and then they'd go to the brothel I didn't go to the brothel with them and I never cared to go to church with them either see if I can be forgiven for anything does it mean that I can just do whatever I like, live however I like. Well, this morning, as we continue to look at the book of Titus, we'll see how we should respond to the grace of God. As we look at Titus chapter 2, we'll see how a correct understanding of God's grace will motivate us to live a life that is good and a life that is attractive to the outsider, not one that they see as hypocrisy, but one they they like. A life that commends the gospel to others, a, a life that makes the gospel shine brightly in this very dark world. So turn with me to Titus chapter 2, page 1198. And uh, we've seen over these past two weeks, this letter was written to the Apostle Paul, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, sorry, written by the Apostle Paul, chapter 1, to Titus, chapter 1, verse 4, who was on the island of Crete, chapter 1, verse 5, and who had this task of sorting out the churches that were dotted there around the island. And you'll see in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul instructed Titus to appoint godly leaders, uh, godly elders, godly church leaders in every church on the island. That was the way he saw the church being sorted out. Put good leaders uh, in place. And so in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 1, he described what a godly church leader should look like. And the reason the churches in Crete needed godly church elders, church leaders, is that 
Uh, well, you can see there are a bunch of false teachers who'd arrived in verse 10. There are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. We saw this last week. The church in Crete had been infiltrated by people who were teaching error. And that bad teaching, you'll see there in verse 11, was ruining whole churches. The word there is households. But remember, the, the church would have met in homes. So all over the island... Our whole churches were being ruined by false teachers. And so last week in verses 10 to 16, we saw how Titus was to deal with these teachers of error. Now, as we turn to chapter 2, Paul tells Titus what he is to teach the churches positively. Stop these people who are teaching the wrong thing. That was last week. Now, this is what you are to teach. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. See how the chapter ends, chapter 2, verse 15. These, then, are the things you should teach. Everything, then, between verse 1 and verse 15 are the things that Titus should teach the churches. Chapter 2, then, is about things that a godly leader should teach. And the word there in in verse 1, sound doctrine, teach sound doctrine, could be translated healthy doctrine, Uh, That is, uh, good teaching is good for you, like your five a day. This is all five of your five a day in one bunch. In contrast to the false teachers and false teaching of chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. See, in our passage this week, in in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we see the things Paul tells Titus to teach the church. But before we uh, look at these verses, we have to look on to verse 11 and 12. For we only properly understand verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, if we first have verses 11 and 12 firmly planted in our minds. See, notice the little word there at the beginning of verse 11, the word for. It's a crucial linking word. It's the sort of word you can quickly read over and and not really take much notice of. But Paul is, is saying to Titus in this chapter, teach verses 1 to 10, for, verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And do you see the point? And if you remember nothing else this morning, please remember this one thing. The grace of God, there in verses 11 and 12, the grace of God is the motivation for living the good life of verses 1 to 10 that we're going to look at. The things we learn in verses 1 to 10 are not simply a list of rules to live by. Verses 1 to 10 do not teach us, tell us, to try harder. Uh, Christianity is never a case of trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just be a little bit better. The good life of verses 1 to 10 should be motivated by the grace of God. 4 verse 12, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and grace teaches us to say yes to living self-controlled, upright and godly lives. And that's what we'll see in verses 1 to 10. Grace producing a life that is self-controlled, upright, and godly. Indeed, self-control is a word that is repeated several times in these verses. So you see, you'll see why I started as I did. When people ask, does the grace of God give me carte blanche to live how I like? Does the fact that I can be forgiven for anything and everything mean that I can just go and live how I like and come back and keep being forgiven? These verses say no. When people think that they can be forgiven for anything, it means 
If they think it means they can go to the brothel and then go to church to be forgiven, these verses say no. The grace of God never teaches that and never encourages that. That's verses 11 and 12. The grace of God teaches me to say no to ungodliness and yes to living a self-controlled, upright and godly life. That's what grace does. I remember it 28 years ago, the day that grace first grabbed my life. Do you remember it for you? I knew then that I could never be the same again, that life would never be the same again. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying from then on I've been perfect, far from it. But having been forgiven so much, grace thrilled my heart and grabbed my soul and gave me a longing to live a good life. I don't succeed, but that is my desire, not just to go and live how I like. As we take communion at the end of this service, the genuine Christian will look at the cross, you'll know you're forgiven, completely forgiven for everything, all the dark secrets of my past dealt with on the cross, all the failures in my present dealt with on the cross, all the mistakes I'll make in the future dealt with at the cross. It's a wonderful thought, isn't it? And as I look at the cross, I see what it costs God to bring me that kind of forgiveness, past, present and future forgiveness. It costs costs God the death of his one and only son. So forgiveness is free, but it isn't cheap. So when I look at the cross, far from think I can go and live how I like, when I've really grasped the gospel of grace, I will be so overwhelmed by God's love, so, so relieved to be forgiven, so amazed by grace as we sing in the hymn. I will say, Lord, you you did all that for me. Now how can I live for you? And that's what verses 1 to 10 are about. Paul teaching Titus what he's to teach the churches in Crete so that people who've been won over by grace will live a life that honours God. Now with that as our control, and clearly in the front of our minds, let's turn to verses 1 to 10 and see what it looks like to live this self-controlled, upright and godly life. And you'll see how Paul tells Titus how to, how, how to address different groups in the church. As we look through here, he sort of goes through different groups. First, uh, he addresses the, the older men. Verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Who falls into this category, the older men category? Hippocrates said it was uh, the over 50s. Philo, the over 60s. So for argument's sake this morning, we'll go for the over 55, shall we? Now that is very good news for some of you here because the only other male group in chapter 2 are described as young men in verse 6. So if you're under 55, the Bible this morning addresses you as a young man. Isn't that good news? Very good news for me because I'm thinking about my 50th next year and that makes me feel a whole lot better about myself. I'm still a young man after all. I know some of you are not convinced about that. I can tell by the nervous, the nervous titters in the in the congregation anyway Paul says Titus when you go to the Friday club and you're teaching older men this is what you're to teach them do you see it there verse 2 be temperate worthy of respect self-controlled sound in faith in love and in endurance I love this verse I love this whole section because Paul knows us so well see what he says to older men be temperate be be moderate be pleasant be peaceable it's just what older men need to hear isn't it some older men because anyone who's watched that program, Grumpy Old Men, on television will know, and stop looking over your shoulder at the person next to you at this moment, some of you, anybody will know that older men have a tendency to be short-tempered and cantankerous old so-and-sos. Again, nervous laughs in the congregation. And so they also need to hear this next instruction too. Teach them to be 
worthy of respect. Now, some are older men tend to think we should respect them just because they're older. So we've heard them saying, respect your elders, you cheeky little monkey. Now, of course, we should respect our elders. Our society needs to hear that. But that's not the point here. Titus must teach older men to be, see it, they're worthy of respect. Older men live a life that commands respect. And that means, verse 2, living a self-controlled life. And you see it there at the end of verse 2, being sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Uh, You'll see on the handout there, Gordon Fee says, this is faith towards God, love towards others, and endurance to the end. In preparing this this week, I thought of two men that I've worked for who fall into this kind of older men bracket. Uh, Both of them have been my vicar when I've been a curate. Both have been a great encouragement to me in exactly this. They showed faith, love, and endurance. I saw them trusting God in difficult circumstances. I saw the way they loved others, often people who weren't very lovable. And I love the way that they were still Christians and still as passionate for Christ as ever they were after serving him for many years. Quite simply, they were an inspiration to me. But you see how encouraging this is for the older men in this congregation. When you live a godly life, you have so much to offer. What a terrific thing to hear. Because the world puts you on the scrap heap at 55. In the world of work, you may have uh, well been told you've got nothing left to offer, nothing to offer now. Uh, Time to move over, time to give the younger men a chance. You've done your time, just go and retire. It's, of course, a ridiculous way to think with all your experience, but listen to this. As a Christian, as you live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, you'll become more useful than you've ever been. With your years of experience in a godly lifestyle, you can be a fantastic encouragement to younger men in the Christian life. You haven't got to sit there and think, I've I've done my time, I'm just sort of waiting to go to heaven. What's that about? You can be massively useful in the church. So from older men, Titus has a speaking engagement at the Mother's Union. Uh, We turn to older women on the, the handout. And Paul helps Titus to know how he should address, shall we call them, ladies of riper years. I know when we're talking about ladies' ages, we're always on dodgy ground here. Stay with me. I'm only trying to be faithful to the text. Verse 3. Stay with me when I read verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Now, you see, just as Paul knew that older men attempted to demand respect rather than earn it, he also knew the particular weakness of older women. Slanderers, gossips. Now, look, it's not that older women are the only one who gossip, but older women, some of them, are the great exponents of the art, aren't they? Again, nervous titters from the husbands. If only only they made Olympic sport of gossiping, we all know women who could gossip for England, and we'd win a few more golds in uh, 2012. Well, Look, I realise I'm on slightly dodgy ground here, but I, I think this is what this is saying. Look, look, rather than gossip, Paul says, use your tongue for good, end of verse 3, to teach what is good. And very especially, you'll see in verse 4, to teach the younger women. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children and so on. Uh, you see, again, the point is this, like the older men, older women have a crucial role in the life of the church. You're to be good examples to others by being reverent in your lives and then by teaching younger women. It's a crucial role. Because Titus is told to teach the older men, verse 2, 
He's told to teach the older women, verse 3. And he's told to teach the younger men in verse 6. But you see, Paul never tells Titus to teach the younger women. Why? Well, it's not for Titus, the young pastor, to be going around to young women's houses while their husbands are at work. That just wouldn't look right. That's the role of the older women, do you see? So older women, that is a key role for you in the life of the church. Teach the younger women. And teach them, verse 4, to love their wives, their husbands and children. Now, what's that all about? Some suggest it was because in first century Crete there were arranged marriages. So you've got to teach uh, your young wives to, to love their husbands. Now whether that was the case or not, let's be honest, marriage and raising a family isn't easy. And arranged marriages or not, women need to be supported in loving their husbands and children. I imagine most young mums have felt that they were going to crack under the strain of life at one point or another. Under pressure, it is easy, isn't it, to become embittered towards your husband and children. Your husband's out all day, enjoying adult conversation, only having to cope with the children for a few hours when he gets in from work. Your children don't appreciate you, they take you for granted, expect you to act like a taxi service, a housemaid and a cook. See, it's then that the older women in the church are invaluable. Not only in offering a helping hand, but teaching younger women. Teach them how the gospel tells them that their roles as wives and mums is crucial and important and worthwhile. You need to be encouraged in your decision to be a full-time homemaker and mother. Motherhood, it seems to me, is such a godly thing to do. Not least of all because it's all about sacrifice. Sacrificing a career with, and with it money. Sacrificing your time. And in those years when the children are young, sacrificing sleep and stimulating adult conversation. Mums, be encouraged. What you're doing is worthwhile and wonderfully sacrificial and selfless. So, older women, what a great role you have in supporting and teaching younger women. Well, from the mother's union, Titus now turns to the, to the younger men in verse 6. And over the page on the handout, if you're still following along. Verse 6, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Now again, you see how Paul, uh, he knows what to say to the older men. He knows what to say to the older women. He now knows exactly what to say to the young men. Self-control. That's it. That is the issue for the young men. Oh, it's an issue for all the groups. But that is the only thing he says to young men. Teach them to be self-controlled. Because it's, it's the great issue for young men. Who is it who drives like a maniac in his souped-up BMW, cutting you up as he zooms past you on the slip-brake lane on the M1? You know, as you shake your fist at him and lay your hands on the, on, the, on the horn. Of course, we don't do that as Christians. But when you think that you might want to do that, you look across and there is a young man, isn't it? Who is it who wakes you up in the small hours of Sunday morning by rowdy singing outside your house? Bunch of lads on their way back from the pub. Who is it who can't control themselves sexually? Well, these days it seems all ages and both sexes, but especially it's a young bucks, isn't it? Self-control is the issue for young men. And when young men lose self-control, everything goes haywire. I love this proverb that I have printed uh, on, this, uh, on, on the, the sermon outline there. Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight: Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Isn't that good? See, when the city walls are broken down, anything can enter the city. And and the city is open to being completely destroyed, completely overrun by all the enemies. So young men, be self-controlled. And it's like building the city walls. It keeps all manner of unhelpful enemies out of your life. 
Self-control. Get that sorted and you'll find there's so much sorted in your life. Self-control then, the big issue for young men. And because Titus is a young man, he should be an example in this. Verse 7. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. I love this. Once again, you see, church leaders are never above anything they teach. Now, Titus, teach the men to be, the young men to be self-controlled, and you make sure you live it. Indeed, a part of teaching is to be saying, watch me as I put this into practice. This is exactly what we saw in Titus chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, isn't it? Paul, when he's appointing leaders, he's not only to appoint people who can teach the scriptures, that's there, but also to appoint people who are godly, who are living it out. Because leaders are not only to teach, but to model their teaching. Well, having dealt then with home life, as Paul has gone to the older men, to the, uh, the older women who will teach the younger women, the young men, it seems Titus is also to be an industrial chaplain. And that's we see in verses 9 and 10. Life at work. Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show they can be fully trusted. This is all about how we conduct ourselves at work. Christians are to have high standards at work. Do you see verse 9? Try to please your employer. So different from the attitude that says, I'll see what I can get away with, I'll do the bare minimum. And it's so much more positive than just keeping your nose clean. This is going the extra mile at work. And showing respect for your boss, verse 9, not talking back to him. And verse 10, not stealing from him. See, Christians should be the best employees, verse 10, completely trustworthy. And I love that right at the end of verse 10. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. And that, it seems, is the big point of these verses. As we live a good life, it will make the gospel attractive and bring glory to God. The the conclusion on our handout, a life taught by grace gives glory to God. That's been the thrust through these verses. Look at the end of verse 5, where he says, Live this way so that no one will malign the word of God. See, we all know the result of failing to live a godly life when unbelievers look at you and say, and you call yourself a Christian. Terrible when that's said, isn't it? Don't you feel terrible? But live a good life and no one can malign the word of God. No one can say that to you. And we see a similar point at the end of verse 8. Live a godly life so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. See, all the way through the New Testament, Christians are told, to, uh, are, are told to assume that they won't be liked. Well, we won't be. We won't be liked when we tell people what we believe. People don't like it when we say that Jesus is the only way to God. People don't like Jesus' teaching that marriage is between uh, one man and one woman for life. And so we will be opposed. They don't like us. But at the end of verse 8, he's saying, if we live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, there'll be nothing bad to say about us. People might try to say bad things, but they won't have anything on us. And then more positively, at the end of verse 10, live a godly life, and your life will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Uh, When uh, Caroline and I um, 
uh, were engaged. I, I, I'm afraid I didn't buy the engagement ring before I asked her to marry me, which I know was a bit of a failure. A few tuts in the congregation. Thanks very much for that. Makes me feel even better about myself. Uh, well, when we got engaged, I, and actually I'm quite pleased because I didn't know she wanted a sapphire. I'd have bought her a, a diamond, but she wanted a sapphire. And uh, so when we went shopping to buy this um, engagement ring, um, you won't be surprised to know that Caroline didn't just say, oh, I'll have any old sapphire. Uh, the setting of the stone was important. Now, the setting of the stone made the stone look more attractive. Of course, it didn't actually change the stone. It doesn't make the stone more valuable, but it does make it more attractive. And that is true of our lives, says Paul here. Our lives don't make the gospel more valuable. The gospel is infinitely valuable. It doesn't matter how we live. It is valuable. And our lives don't make the gospel more beautiful. The gospel is the most beautiful thing in the world. But our lives can enhance the gospel like the setting of a jewel. And you can be sure of this. A jewel set in a godly life can be seen for what it is, but a jewel covered in muck won't be seen at all. So live an attractive Christian life, says Paul here, right through this, these ten verses. And that comes from being taught sound doctrine, Because as you teach sound doctrine, people know the grace of God. Grace is right at the heart of the gospel. And so as you put yourself under the sound of good Bible teaching, uh, you'll live a better life. So do that as often as you can. Make sure that Sundays are not something, well, I'll go when I can. No, no, I'm desperate to hear about the the grace of God. I I, I want to know more so that I can know how to live. Make sure that you you don't sort of miss out on your small groups. Go every week. If you're not part of a small group, become one. I want to learn what the Bible is saying because I want to live a godly life. Make sure that you encourage one another, one-to-one with sound doctrine because that will tell you the grace of God which will encourage you to live the way you should. Keep hearing the sound doctrine. Keep hearing about the grace of God which will teach you to say no to ungodly and worldly passions and will teach you to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you very much for your grace, your wonderful grace, where we can be forgiven anything and everything. And we thank you very much for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ where we find that forgiveness. And we pray that our hearts would be uh, grabbed, won over by grace again and again. And not least of all today as we take bread and wine in a moment. We pray that we would be so overwhelmed by grace that we'd be longing to live the way we ought to live. And we pray that as we have seen this morning that you would help us to live a life that won't malign your word that will mean that when people want to find something bad to say about us they have nothing to say and most positively of all that we would live a life that makes the teaching about you our saviour attractive to others may we live lives that are truly outstanding so that you are glorified and we pray it through Christ our Lord Amen